Well, as we said, we're beginning a new series today in the book of Ephesians and chapter 6. We've entitled this little series, Stand. And the reason for that is that in the passage that uh, Abigail read to us, uh, the word stand, I don't know if you noticed, appears four times. It's there in verse 11. Uh, Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It's there again twice in verse 13. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. And then finally it's there again in verse 14 uh, when Paul gives the command stand firm then. So four times in just a few verses Paul uses this word. Now it should be uh, quite obvious to us that this uh, passage has the language of conflict about it. Um, as he gets to the end of this letter, Paul here defines for his readers, his Christian readers, uh, he defines life in terms of a great struggle, a battle. He's keen that his readers would not be wobbly. Do you remember those uh, little toys you could get when we were children? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down because they were all round on the bottom and you can knock them over. And... Well, he's, he's concerned that his Christian readers would be wobbly and that things would come into their lives that would knock them down and he really wants them to be able to stand and to be strong this whole section is really about stability uh, being able to stand in the face of a great conflict in the face of hostility and I suppose at the start the question is will you stand can you stand can we stand what does it mean to stand I think uh, this section of the Bible here is, has become quite famous for Paul's depiction of what is known as the armour of God. And uh, the whole thrust of this passage is you're in a battle, so you need to put your armour on so that you'll be able to what? Stand. You're all awake. Excellent. Paul sees the Christian life not as a life of ease but as a life of fighting the life of a soldier Paul is writing this letter to Ephesus from prison did you notice verse 20 um, he, he asked them to pray for him that he fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains he says it again at the beginning of chapter 4 Paul here is in prison and um, sometimes prisoners would be under the guard of Roman soldiers and maybe it's the case that as Paul writes this letter and he comes to the end and he's looking around what illustration can I use to try and uh, inspire the people I'm writing to and who knows there was a soldier there stood right there with him in his cell on guard and he kind of conjures this uh, word picture doesn't he stand firm then with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. What we're going to plan to do over the summer months then is, is to try and examine and consider this uh, theme of the armour of God and to take each one and try and unpack uh, that imagery and, and understand what it is that Paul is driving at with these weird pictures. But before we get into the armour of God, 
we're just going to spend a couple of weeks just making some introductory comments to this section. Uh, next week, uh, God willing, I want to spend a little bit of time just thinking about what standing should look like in our lives. What does it mean to stand? What, what does that look like practically? What will it look like in your life or my life? Um, I, I think this is a fitting end to, to this letter. When, when you get to verse 9, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul could have said, You're sincerely your good friend, Paul. But he doesn't say that. After writing six chapters up to verse 9, instead of saying, Cheerio, you're sincerely, he says, finally. And he's clearly got something to say to them at the end of this letter that is kind of the conclusion of everything that he's already said in the previous five or six chapters. So I I think this section is a conclusion. And if we're going to understand what standing looks like, we need to grasp some of the themes in the letter that come before this. So that's where we're going to go next week, all being well. Uh, For today, I just want to be a little bit more general in introducing this theme and ask the question, what, what on earth are we supposed to be standing against? Um, that's a good question. It is a principle, uh, I think, I've, I've not been in many battles um, or wars, but I, I think it's a principle that if you're going to be involved in a war, you won't do very well if you don't know or if you underestimate your enemy. Is that true? And uh, so I want to think first of all about who it is or what it is that we are meant to stand against. If you want a text or or a verse for us to think about this afternoon, probably verse 12 is, is the key one that I want us to think about today, where Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the issue that we need to deal with straight away and that we're going to try and deal with today is this idea, this talk of supernatural evil. Paul is speaking about the heavenly realms here. Uh, If you look at verse 11, the, the reason he gives for his readers to put on, put on this full armour of God is so that they can take their stand against the devil's schemes. So he mentions the devil here. Thank you, Ian. <laughs> they won't argue with an ex-bouncer, will they? <laughs> the devil's schemes. Now, this is God's word. But I suggest to you that to our modern ears this can sound like ridiculous talk. How can an educated person like you believe in the devil? Surely people leave this behind when they leave kindergarten or whatever it is these days. The idea of uh, a devil, surely this is medieval and has no place in a modern, sophisticated, scientific culture. This is on a par with myths and legends. No one surely takes this sort of language seriously anymore. The idea of a red devil with horns and a pitchfork is surely just a caricature. 
there are even Bible commentators who can't take Paul seriously at this point, and they'll say a lot of what Paul says is really good. But on this point, he was a little bit superstitious and he was a bit mixed up. Um, maybe they don't think that this is God's word. It's just kind of Paul's opinions. Um, so let's kind of explore this idea. Some of these ideas go back to earlier periods in our history. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on this, don't worry. But uh, in the 16th and 17th century, there was a period uh, in Western Europe, at least, that has become known as the Age of Enlightenment. And the scientific bigwigs, the scientific elite, uh, suggested that this universe is what they called a closed system. In other words, what you see is all there is. There is no place for supernatural intervention. There's a natural explanation for everything. And this idea, this naturalistic idea, if you like, has completely dominated Western philosophy in the last century. So, for example, you may hear someone say, isn't it great that we've moved on as a human race? We're quite sophisticated now. We're not like our superstitious ancestors who didn't know what they were doing. Poor old them. They didn't understand the world like we do. And this idea of God and devils and all that kind of stuff was their way of explaining things that they couldn't understand but we've moved on from that now. Does that ring bells with you culturally? That is, that is the kind of uh, philosophy that has dominated. Uh, what our modern culture is saying is exactly the opposite of what Paul says here. Our modern culture is saying our struggle is against flesh and blood. It is purely a natural thing. There's nothing more to it than that. What strikes me as really interesting about that, and I'm sure it will strike you as interesting, is that even though we think we're so sophisticated, we still don't understand the origin and existence of evil. Do we? We think we've moved on, but we're no nearer to understanding the problem of evil than we've ever been. So the suggestion is, if you believe this stuff, you're a simpleton. Congratulations. You must be some sort of intellectually challenged person. You've ceased to be rational and logical and really, us clever scientific folk, we, we do pity you and we hope that one day you'll grow up and mature. I want to suggest to you that that actually is part of Paul's point here. Paul's argument here is, you are involved in a fight. And if you don't appreciate the nature of of the conflict you've lost before you've even started, haven't you? The problem of evil is not simple or just one-dimensional, but it is complex and it is cosmic. And to deny these spiritual realities is not sophisticated, but foolish. If you think that Paul here is a medieval simpleton, the reality is that your own view of evil is far more simplistic than his is. And I want to suggest to you that the Bible's view or concept of the world and of evil is the most sophisticated view 
of evil. And it's not simplistic at all. I'm very grateful uh, in some of my background reading to an American uh, minister, Tim Keller, some of you have read, who, who um, has, has grappled with this. So you, you might see some, if, if, if you've heard Keller speak on some of these things, you might hear, see some parallels here. But let me just flesh out some biblical themes that Paul is aware of. Um, are we on? The first thing I want to point out is that you and I have souls. Uh, The fact is that you and I are not just flesh and blood, but we have eternal souls. These clever, sophisticated scientists, they tell us that basically human beings are just a bag of molecules, chemicals, collections of atoms. We are effectively very highly developed matter. When you think about that, there's no one in the world who actually lives like that, is there? As if that was true, I mean. We seem to be aware, don't we, of the special uniqueness and dignity of human nature. We crave and yearn for fulfilment and satisfaction. We seem to have such high ideals And we have the capacity for such profound experiences, especially in relationships. If we are just highly developed matter or bags of molecules, why is it that we recoil in horror when we see evil like we saw in America two days ago? People gunned down by a masked man while they watch a film in a cinema. If we're just atoms and nothing more, why does it matter? It shouldn't really surprise us that things like that happen. But none of us can live like that. We feel the horror and pain and injustice. Even Barack Obama, the president, uh, spoke of bringing the perpetrator to justice. What does that mean if we're just bags of molecules? God's way teaches us that we are created as immortal souls. I don't know if you ever stopped to think about that. One of the implications of that is that means that every one of you sitting here in this room will be conscious and aware of being two billion years from now. Immortal souls. And that, that's an awe, awesome thought, isn't it? A part of the spiritual battle that we're involved in involves our eternal destiny. The choices we make, the attitudes we cultivate, the things we do and say actually matter. It's not so much that our choices affect our bodies, they actually affect our souls. When, when you um, get a little bit older, some of you are older than me, some of you are younger than me, but I've got to age now where I've realised something like this. There's times when certain behaviours seem wrong, but then you choose to do that thing and the next time it becomes easier have you noticed that horrified the first time then it becomes a little bit easier the things that would have shocked you once become a little easier each time you do them what is happening is that your soul my soul is being shaped marked 
character being formed. When we choose to act in a selfish way, it isn't a non-event. It marks our souls. Just imagine with me what it would be like if that went on for millions of years. And we slowly become what we really are, little by little by little. We've said many times, haven't we, that selfishness and ungodliness is something that shrivels us. It drives us into ourselves and we become marked and defined by these things. So I want to say to you that the things that you do today count. Every single day is a battlefield, in one sense, for your soul. And this is a battle in which the stakes could not be higher. You have a soul, you have a destiny. This very moment matters enormously. It is not sophisticated to laugh eternity off as something that the human race is growing out of. That is completely foolish and reckless, isn't it? So that's one thing I think Paul's aware of here, that human beings are created in the image of God. We have a soul. Uh, The second thing... Oh, there it is. Thanks, Rob. There, There is an unseen spiritual realm. Paul speaks of it here. One of the things that I think will strike us about this letter that Paul writes is just the sheer wideness of Paul's horizon. He has such a sense of vision that is cosmic, really. Um, He speaks several times in this letter about heavenly realms. Just turn back with me to chapter 1 and um, and verse 3. This uh, letter begins... And Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He doesn't like full stops much, Paul. You have to kind of take a deep breath before you read this stuff. His vision is enormous. He's not just concerned about this moment, but God has blessed you in the heavenly realms. This is cosmic in its significance. Just turn with me to chapter 3 as well in uh, verse 10. Paul speaks about the gospel. and, uh, And he says in verse 10, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is one of the most amazing verses of the Bible. What Paul is saying there is that God saves people through Jesus. He grafts them into the church so that he can show that off to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms and go, look at that, isn't it amazing? People are being saved. In this sin-spoiled, broken world, people love Jesus. 
And God is showing that off to those heavenly realms. This is not just about now and here. This is about eternity. And in chapter 6 that Abby read to us in verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers. Against the authorities. Against the powers of this dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Many thinkers and philosophers have grappled and do grapple and will grapple with the problem and the existence of evil. What does the Bible teach? And uh, perhaps this is a good time for us to think about the devil. Um, how can I um, say this? Where, where does the devil come from? You know, God is the creator. So, is it, is it like... We live in a dualistic world where there's like yin and yang. And there's kind of forces of good and forces of evil. Like Star Wars, I don't know. It's, and it's dualistic. And it's not quite clear which side's going to win. They're, they're locked in this battle and it's all balanced. Good, evil. I don't think the Bible teaches that at all. Um, just... Um, the Bible hints at this. And I just want to turn you to two passages in the Old Testament. Um, the first is uh, the book of Ezekiel. And chapter 28. Let me just give you a page number here. Chapter 28. And verse uh, 12. page 858 this is a very uh, mysterious prophecy in a way Um, Ezekiel is speaking and uh, so yeah verse 11 the word of the Lord came to me son of man take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him this is what the sovereign Lord says just listen to these words You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor so I threw you to the earth. It's a very strange passage that but you get the sense here of an angelic being who is so 
radiant, beautiful, full of power, creativity, purity, absolutely amazing in his power and intelligence. But one day this creature looked in the mirror and thought, man alive, I'm good. I could sit on God's throne. I could sit on God's throne. Pride. A created being wanting to sit in God's seat. Just um, turn back with me a few pages to Isaiah chapter 14. And there's another similar um, passage here. Uh, page 699. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Isaiah cries out, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost height of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Well, we we could go on there and read. What does the Bible say? There's a very interesting passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 18, if you make your notes, when some of Jesus' disciples come back after a successful mission and they're very glad about what they've done. And Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What an amazing thing for Jesus to say. I was there on the day when that beautiful, glorious creature fell from heaven. What does all this mean then? Well, firstly, it means that the devil is a created being. He is not all-powerful. He is not God. And that means that this is not a dualistic world that consists of equal opposite yin and yang. It is not an uncertain contest in which there'll never be a winner. There is one God who is the creator of all things and that means that evil cannot ultimately prevail. The second thing it means is that God did not create evil. The Bible teaches us that it actually arose inside the heart of one of his most glorious creatures. And the source of evil really is pride in the heart of that angelic being. There's a hint in Revelation that one third of the other angelic creatures joined the devil in this rebellion. How many that is, we don't know. Revelation speaks of myriads. What's a myriad? I don't know. 10,000 times 10,000. The fact that a third of the angels left with him shows how supreme the devil was in his original state. Um, 
And there's a letter in the New Testament just before Revelation by a man called Jude. And he speaks of some of these angelic beings being bound for judgment. And there's a very interesting passage in Luke's Gospel. Do you remember when Jesus came to that region and a man came to him who was possessed by evil spirits? And Jesus began to speak to him. And the evil spirits pleaded with Jesus, it says, not to send them into the abyss. Yeah, I don't know if you recall that story. They knew that Jesus was the Lord. Please don't send us there. These are angelic beings, cosmic intelligences, who have rebelled against God. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, speaks of these spiritual forces as being powerful, wicked and cunning. They're powerful because they have global influence. Jesus is the king, but these usurpers, if you like, haven't yet been destroyed. And they haven't conceded defeat, even though they are defeated. But it's one thing to be powerful. Power is neutral in a way, isn't it? It depends how you use it, doesn't it? You could use your power for good. You could use your power for evil. But these spiritual beings have no scruples. They are wicked, hateful and vengeful. They have no code of honour. They don't play by any rules. Their supreme desire is to rage against God and to pollute, infect and destroy what is good. And as John Stott says, they're cunning. Uh, Paul writes here, the devil's schemes. Jesus described the devil as the father of lies. Sometimes he'll be seductive and subtle. Other times he'll be head on. He'll use intimidation or insinuation. He will bully and beguile. Sometimes he'll be forceful. Sometimes he'll be fraudulent. Paul says elsewhere that the devil can translate himself into an angel of light and make himself even look as though he's good. So the Bible's account here of evil entering God's good world is that these malignant spiritual beings are always seeking to drive a wedge between God and humans and humans and one another. And the result is that this world is a battleground. Jesus called the devil the ruler of this world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel. And he says here in this letter in chapter 2 he describes the devil as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So you have an eternal soul. There is an unseen heavenly realm. And thirdly Evil is therefore more complex than we think it is. Some people say evil is just biological. Or it's social. It's environmental. Or it's all to do with education. But the problem is that all of these diagnoses are all falling into trap of assuming that our struggle is only against flesh and blood. Paul has a much more sophisticated view than that. It is far from being medieval. What Paul is saying is that evil is present within us. 
It is present around us. And now we find that evil is even over us. It is multidimensional. It is complex. It's not simplistic at all. And when we look at the world around us and back into history, does this, um, does this not explain for us what we've seen? The breakout of evil shouldn't really surprise us because it is multifaceted. Uh, some of you read the news and wonder where on earth does this come from? For some of you, maybe it's even more close to home. Someone who you trusted. You never thought that they were capable of what they then did. Maybe you are a victim. Maybe some of you wonder at your own heart sometimes and feel shocked and think, I never knew I was capable of that. Where did that come from? There is no way that we can say that evil is a simplistic Think. Think of its deceit. You know, one of the strange things about evil is it never walks up to you and says, This is what I want you to do. It's going to be great. Whoever in this world set out to make a shipwreck of their life, evil never comes to us and plays straight with us and gives us all the features and benefits. You can upgrade to this if you like. It, it, evil never does that. Sometimes, I, I've been fishing, and um, some some people think fishing's really cruel, don't they? And it is in a way. A poor little maggot. Honestly, what a life being a maggot. Pick it out of the tin, and it wiggles there between your fingers, and you just kind of fit it onto the hook and drown it in the water, and the fish swims along. And what does he see? A great big fat juicy maggot. That's my breakfast, that is. I'm going to have that. If you just dropped a hook into water, you wouldn't catch anything, would you? Even fish are not stupid. They're not going to bite a sharp hook. It needs to be covered, doesn't it, with a big, fat, juicy maggot. And then you take that, and what happens? And the fish is caught. Evil is subtle, deceptive. Paul speaks here, the devil's schemes. He's never going to walk up to you and say, do you know what? It'd be a great idea if you made a shipwreck of your life, wouldn't it? You'd never fall for that. What he does is he gives you a great big fat juicy maggot. He takes a good thing and makes it look so alluring. It's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? It's like this is evil that is trying to creep up on us from behind to grab us by the throat. Sometimes we don't even know what's happened until we've fallen. And then we think, what? What happened there? Evil is not simplistic at all. And what about this as well? The thing about evil is, and the thing about passages like this is, don't they always drive us to extreme reactions? There's two extremes that we can run to. One extreme is, I'm not having this. This is ridiculous. There's no such thing as the devil. Heavenly realms, angelic beings, evil, sin. I'm, I'm not having that at all. That is being asleep in the middle of the battle. But there is another extreme that we go to this end extreme and say every wrong thing that happens we blame it all on the devil and we see demons behind every tree. My car broke down, it was the devil. And, and, and we've kind of got another extreme over here where we actually, we're not asleep but we begin to abdicate responsibility and think, was it my fault? It was the devil who made me do it? 
we're either asleep or we just abdicate. Evil is far more complex than we think it is. Well, we've made the point, haven't we? I think we do live in a very shallow and superficial age. And everything we're bombarded with is all about today, me, my, my feelings. And this is a word for us, isn't it? To remind us that we have eternal souls, that there is a spiritual realm, and that evil is not simplistic but complex. And people can dismiss the Bible as being medieval, but the, the Bible has the most nuanced and complex view of evil. So when Paul gets to the end of this letter, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is far more cosmic than that. I want to close with four quick application thoughts, and then we're done. So, let's uh, do number one. So, the, these are four things that we can take away. What we, you know, it's nice to talk about these things, but what we're going to take away? First application then, we're not in heaven yet. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Richard and I went to a pastor's conference up in Leeds and there were a few people who gave a little report about what was going on in their church. And there was a young man there, he, he was probably only in his mid-twenties, young pastor of a new church been planted in Bradford, Trinity Church, I think it was called, Trinity Church Bradford, 25 people start a new church they meet in a hotel in the centre of Bradford and this young pastor was asked what, what's the biggest spiritual problem that you're having to deal with in your area where you are and I was really intrigued by his answer he said that the biggest thing that has influenced Christians this is in Bradford is the idea that the things that God promises us in heaven, we can have them now. Interesting idea. And so, when something difficult or hard comes into their life, they immediately assume that God has abandoned them. They have no ability to stand because they think that it's heaven now. How many times do people who say, you know, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't really have any problems. I, I just want to be happy. That may be true one day. If you're a Christian, it will be true. But for now, you're called to stand. To endure a battle. Now is a struggle. Then is a crown. But not yet. Paul, nowhere, the Bible nowhere gives a shortcut to escaping this fight. You can take drugs if you want to inoculate yourself or go to sleep. But there is no escape in this fight, this side of heaven. This is a struggle. That is why Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Don't go to sleep. Don't ignore it. Be alert and awake and endure the battle. 
You're called to stand, not hide. It's not heaven yet. Maybe that's weird for some of you. Number two. The battle is God's, but the struggle is ours. We'll have to be quick here, but what do I mean by that? A lot of the Christian debates and disagreements in history have come down to this issue of, is it all God or is it all me? Some, I grew up in the 70s and, I, and prior to the 70s and 60s, there were groups of Christians and their slogan was, to live the Christian life, what you need to do is let go and let God. What a great slogan that is. It sounds very nice, doesn't it? Let go, let God. I'm going to have a coffee over here. Well, God does it all. Some people go to the other extreme and they think that God is kind of, you know, millions of miles away waiting for you to come up to scratch and that it all depends on you. I just can't do it. And God's kind of waiting for you to come up to scratch before... What, it, what is the biblical balance between those two extremes? The biblical balance is... That the battle is God's. It is his war. And the outcome of that battle is sure. And for those who put their faith in Christ, our job is to put one foot in front of the other and walk through life with his help. There's a cooperation here between God's sovereignty and our willingness to endure. Look at what Paul says, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, but you... Put on the armour. You don't lie down while God clothes you in the armour. You've got to get up and put it on. But as you put it on, you're doing it in his mighty power. All the way through the Bible, you'll see this balance. The battle is God's, but the struggle is ours in his strength. And we need to remember that. There is no escapism. There's no shortcut. There is no kind of mysterious thing that you can do that's a silver bullet that will take all of that struggle away we're called to stand in his strength but we need to do the standing with his help those two things go hand in hand you can't live the Christian life by magic you know you you can't go through life thinking I'm not going to read my Bible but God will help me anyway by magic You have to be alert and apply yourself with God's help. Tim Keller gives a great illustration of of this point. When he he talks about, he said, imagine you're a soldier in the trenches and your general says, I want you to go over the top. See that tower over there where those people are shooting at you? They're trying to kill you, by the way. But I want you to go over the top and the moment you come over the top, we're going to cover you. The planes will come in and they'll cover you. They'll be, they'll be right there with you. You're sat in the trenches thinking, can you just send a couple of bombs to show me that you're there? Because I don't really want to go over the top until I know. The truth is, you have to step out in God's strength. And that's the way it works. You can't hesitate or wait. or You need to do the basics. I need to do the basics in God's strength be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and put on the full armour of God the battle is sure but the struggle is ours we need to be quick number three fear sin more than anything some people are obsessed with the devil 
I'm talking about Christians now. I, I'm hor- you can go to Christian bookshops and read books on the devil. I, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even use them for bonfire. What, what a load of nonsense is talked about the devil sometimes. There's so much rubbish written about this subject. We haven't got time to go into it all now. If you're reading books about this kind of stuff, please tell me, tell us, because there's stuff out there that will not do you any good. One of the problems is that we get all obsessed with the devil and we think, oh, there's demons everywhere. When you read the Bible, the issue is not to start talking to demons and telling them to leave you alone. The issue is to stop sinning and do what's right. (laughs) It's called repentance. The Bible isn't, like, complicated. Um, The issue is being godly, holy and true. Don't blame others, your environment or demons. Come and just walk in a straight line. There's a brilliant illustration of this in the book Pilgrim's Progress. Um, We've got a children's copy at home. Have you heard of Pilgrim's Progress? John Bunyan. Let me uh, read a little extract to you. This is like a bit of a paraphrase. It's not John Bunyan's original words because it's written for kids, but I think it reads well. Christian, what with a start? He'd had a dream, but the voices which woke him weren't in his dream. Did you see the size of it? said one. Did you see the teeth? said another. Two shrill creatures, a man and a woman, came pelting up the lane towards him. Hands flailing, feet stumbling, yelping and whimpering like puppies newly stepped on. You're going the wrong way, said Christian. The golden city's that way. You can keep your golden city and everything in it, said the white-faced man. We're going back. That's right, you tell him, Tim, showed the white-faced woman. Hardship is one thing, but lions is another. That's right, Miss Trust, you tell him. Great ravening lions just lying there waiting to eat up pilgrims. I'll do a lot, I'll put up with a lot, but nobody can make me feed myself to a pair of hungry lions. And away they went, over the hill, timid and mistrust. I love John Bunyan's names. Babbling and gibbering with fright. They weren't lying either. Within half a mile, Christian could hear the roaring for himself, a throaty rumbling which echoed along the narrow lane like approaching thunder. I should have scanned this and shown you the picture. Two lions. Do you notice something about the lions? There's a chain. When Pilgrim got to the porter's lodge, looking terrified, how on earth, and I don't want to go back, but how on earth am I going to get through there? The porter said, where's your faith, man? Have you noticed that the lions are on chains and they can only go so far? If you walk right down the middle, they can roar and snarl and shake their paws at you, but they won't be able to touch you. Just don't deviate from the middle and you'll be fine he set off walking and he felt the fairy bodies the hot breath the paws with the roar and he began to clap his hands as he realised they can't touch me what point was Bunyan making I think the point that Bunyan's making is 
that the devil can't do you any harm if you walk in a straight line. There's a lovely phrase in chapter 5, is it? Um, where Paul speaks about, don't let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. When you begin to give in to bitterness, lust, greed, what you're doing is veering off that central line and that's when you'll get a claw in the back. That's the point he's making. It's not a perfect illustration. We'll come back to this next time. The devil can't hurt you if you're following Jesus and you're his. You're walking in a straight line. Don't play. The, the, the point of this heading is we can be very afraid of the devil but we're not afraid of sin as much as we should be. The thing that should really terrify us is walking off the line. Sin. Lord, help me to walk in a straight line. That should be our prayer. Pilgrim wasn't supposed to be terrified of the lion's roar. They couldn't hurt him if he walked in a straight line. One last uh, point. This is the best one. The devil is mighty, but he is flawed. This is the last point now, so we're nearly done. Let me explain this. This is really glorious. I've always been intrigued, even as a youngster, sorry, by the comparison that the Bible makes between the devil and the Lord Jesus, Son of God. Just think with me for a minute. The devil is the one who was beautiful, powerful, the one who shone with a kind of unique angelic glory. He radiated and glowed with breathtaking majesty. But it all turned ugly because he wanted to be God. He wanted to go up higher and grasp the throne. And because of his pride, he was cast down. Just compare that for a moment with me, with the Lord Jesus. He is the eternal Son of God. He's not a created being. He is the creator, full of glory. And yet Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, that he, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. His rightful place was on the throne, and yet he wanted to go down. He didn't grasp glory, but he held it lightly and was willing to be humbled even to the extent of becoming a human being. What was the result? Paul tells us he was given a name higher than any other name read Philippians chapter 2 listen there is something in the very heart of God that is supremely beautiful humility tenderness lowliness 
The devil wanted to go up and was cast down. Jesus was cast down and is therefore highly exalted. The devil says, I want your life to save me. Jesus says, I'll lay down my life to save you. Tim Keller suggests that there's only two types of DNA in this universe. One is like Jesus. Selfless, pure, giving, clean and truthful. The other is devilish, deceptive, self-seeking, shriveled and dark. One glows and one hides in the shadows. In the end, all of us are moving towards one of those extremes or the other. Either you are Christ's and you're growing to be like him. And if that's true for you, one day you will be made perfect in him. And two billion years from now, you'll be glowing with the same kind of selfless, humble radiance that he glows with. Isn't that a glorious hope? Or you're not his. You have the other sort of DNA. If it hasn't yet, one day your true DNA will force its way out and you will be as wretched and miserable as the devil himself. The thing is, we can't tell (laughs) what DNA causes inside of us. Only you can know. When Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, you can see now that he is talking about a unique kind of power. Jesus won by losing. He conquered everything by being weak. He triumphed over his enemies by dying. And that means that if you are Christ, you can be confident and humble at the same time. Humble because your life depends on his great work and character. But you can be confident because of who you are in him. Imagine that, being humbly confident or confidently humble. Do you get that? Only Jesus can make that possible. And so with Paul, I want to urge me and you, do not be strong like this world thinks of strength. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand.